The materials provided are for information only and do not constitute as an offer. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors. Neither Zach or Jack are financial advisors. The information contained in this podcast episode has been compiled with considerable care to ensure its accuracy at the date of publication. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made to accuracy or completeness. We shall not be responsible for any consequential effect, nor be liable for any direct, consequential, incidental, indirect loss or damage, however caused, arising from the use of, inability to use, or reliance upon any information or materials provided on this podcast, whether or not such loss or damage is caused by us. Links to third-party sites are provided for your information only. The content and software of these sites have been issued by third parties. As such, we cannot be responsible for the accuracy of information contained in these sites, nor be held liable for any loss or damage arising from or related to their use. Investors should be cautious about any and all crypto asset and investment recommendations and should consider the source of any advice on crypto asset selection. Various factors, including personal or corporate ownership, may influence or factor into an expert's stock analysis or opinion. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual crypto assets before making a purchase decision. In addition, investors are advised that past crypto asset performance is no guarantee of future price appreciation. Do not invest money you cannot afford to lose. All investments come with a degree of risk. Hello, Zach. Hey, Jack. How's it going, man? It's all right. It's been a fairly stressful morning dealing with our crumbling banking infrastructure uh, (laughs) and tax collection services here in California. I can understand the former. Uh, well, hopefully you've got that sorted out or are in the process. But. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about sorted out, but definitely in the process and definitely really passionate to talk about kind of all alternative, you know, governance and economic systems with a fellow, a fellow token econ- economist. Uh, speaking of such a token economist, why don't you introduce our fantastic guest today? So on the podcast today, we have Baron Gotti. Also a Westchester native like myself, he used to work at Ray Dalio's Bridgewater, arguably one of the most successful hedge funds of all time, and now is a token economist at the Pink Sky Group. Baron, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So Baron, what is it that made you so passionate about blockchain and token economics that made you shift from your kind of more traditional financial career path over into the crypto space? Great question. So initially, it was just simple curiosity. A friend of mine said, hey, you know, I'm hearing about this thing called a blockchain you might want to look into. Uh, I hear there's some stuff about it. And this was like in late, maybe mid to late 2016. And I started researching it. And at right about the same time, uh, my dad met somebody who was interested in potentially uh, hiring somebody to do some creative thinking and possibly algorithmic trading system development in the cryptocurrency space. And that didn't end up ever working out. But my interaction with him uh, over time, he gave me a lot of resources to read about. And I just you know, absorbed just a ton of information. And the more I learned, the more I saw just an amazing opportunity in the space for application of creative application of traditional, traditional financial and um, econometric methodologies to this new space. Initially, I was focused on utility coins. And one of the more intriguing problems that really got me into thinking about this was looking at how 
the token economies were being structured in order to try and provide a realistic a realistic expectation of token value increase over time in a utility economy. And so that, that was uh, what kind of drew me in. And what, what are some of the things that have made you stay? Just the opportunity that I see. I foresee just an absolute massive future adoption of blockchain-based businesses, especially with anything related to data management, uh, for example, like healthcare information services, data ownership, a- advertising categorization of data from users. Uh, there's just an infinite potential for the use of the underlying uh, distributed ledger technology and the immutable, trustless environment of a blockchain for data transition and data management, especially when it comes to artificial intelligence and machine learning-based data analysis eventually as well. And it just seems like it's going to create such a frictionless and advanced way to organize information and run companies through decentralized autonomous uh, organizations as well that just the immense opportunity in the space kept me here for sure. And I linked up with an old friend, Brad Lipson, who is the current CEO of uh, Pink Sky Group and managing partner of Pink Sky Capital. And we decided that it made sense for me to come on board as the chief economist there. That's fantastic. I'm curious, having shifted from you know an institution like Bridgewater to being fully into the crypto space, I'm wondering if, I guess what we can call a change in bubble has sort of changed your outlook on the you know, broader challenges um, and needs you know, faced in today's economy. What do you mean a change in bubble? You're going from being around Bridgewater people all the time to being around crypto people all the time. So presumably, you know, they're thinking about different things. They're concerned about you know, different things. They see different types of opportunities. How has that change of pace you know, affected your outlook? And does, I guess, you know, further in that regard, what do you think, or in what areas do you think your background from Bridgewater gives you a different and perhaps improved outlook than people who are more natively crypto? Um, sure. I think one thing is the just a relentless, egoless meritocracy-based and, and transparency-based assessment of thinking through problems and testing your own ideas consistently and building systems and algorithms to basically maximize efficiency in every aspect of business operation, trading, and everything throughout. So I always use the same methodology that I was taught, uh, both academically and at Bridgewater, through um, rigorous assessment and testing. And that's why one of the main tools that we use pretty regularly is a Monte Carlo simulations and wide-ranging assumptions to test the sensitivity of models. Uh, And that, I think, has been extremely useful and something that you don't see very much when you look at white papers, when you look at uh, proposed uh, utility and security tokens. There really aren't that many people thinking about this type of systematic and algorithmic-based approach in the space. And again, that's like why I'm so passionate about it is because there's such an open area for that to be implemented. And it, it excites me to be able to you know, be on the you know, kind of leading edge of that. So what in the crypto space has you most excited? And we spoke a bit earlier before the call started about STOs. Is that, yep. I guess, where you see the most opportunity? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, we're actually working with a client right now who owns a mine, a commodity mine, and issued a $100 million euro bond on that mine in Germany through their regulators. It's all been approved and everything. And he approached us for the purpose of developing a security token that would allow the purchasers of the bond to be repaid in gold-backed token, so a commodity-backed token uh, with a full audit, full transparency, uh, monthly audits by three auditors, extremely above-board type stuff, works with the best regulators, best you know banks in Germany. And the reason that this is so interesting is because it's going to be a post-effective amendment, meaning that the bond is already issued. So it's already being sold. It's being The listing is coming up in Frankfurt in about 10 days to two weeks, he said. I actually just talked to him today. And the really interesting part is that the cost of mining gold and the cost of transporting gold is significant. And what the owner of the mine can do, because it costs him less to produce the gold than to sell it, than it would be to get euros to repay the bondholders, he can actually, and this was something that was being done regardless of the security token, at the end of the period, uh, at the end of the bond uh, maturity date, the bondholders would be allowed to choose to accept either euros in cash or an equivalent amount minus fees and stuff of gold. But it's hard to get gold transported. And even if you just took ownership of it in a vault, there's fees and ownership and legal paperwork and stuff that's involved. Whereas his idea was to say, you know what, let's just skip all that cost and rigmarole and let's just issue a security token to these people with you know one ounce for one token and just have it you know, issued directly. And that's what we're going to be um, doing over the next probably couple of months is developing and implementing that. And that's really, I think, one of the key things that I think will help bridge the gap between traditional finance and this new cryptocurrency space where, you know, there's a very small percentage of very passionate people who see the potential. Having that bridge, having that link to a traditional corporate finance mechanism provides a lot of value, both in terms of confidence and credibility, reliability, transparency, that people are worried about when they were seeing the boom and bust of the ICO phase. So are you mainly focused now on security token offerings? Uh, um, I think, just, yeah, I mean, it's just what the market bears. Um, there are definitely people we're working with in terms of developing and thinking about utility coins, especially in those areas of data management and creation and sale and categorization and cleaning, stuff like that. Those arguments for economies, especially closed economies, where there isn't a need to provide a growth of a value, rather just a use, just a literal utility, uh, that's definitely still in the works in a lot of ways. And um, we're definitely working with clients on some of those areas as well. But the, the main future like in terms of market cap that we see is definitely in the, you know, commodity backed, equity linked, real estate linked, stable coin, um, gold coin, like those types of security token offerings. And I, I, you can't even classify MakerDAO and the DAI as a security token because it's free to use without KYC, uh, know your um, customer and anti-money laundering AML requirements from any country. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with DAI, but it's a U.S. dollar-based cryptocurrency collateralized by Ether. 
And that type of setup is extremely intriguing and they've been extremely successful so far. Uh, and it's incredible to see. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you think that the advantage of STOs today is more a result of the regulatory environment or more a result of the sort of limitations slash, you know, what's been made possible by today's blockchain technology? Um, I think it's a desire for accountability and a desire for transparency. And that KYC AML standard helps provide that in some sense. But it's also just because it's a lot easier for people to understand, I think. And sure, there has definitely been increases in technology, but I think it's more along the lines of the potential consumers being more comfortable with the linkage to traditional financing mechanisms and the clarity with which that is provided through the KYC AML rigorous standards in the EU and the US that drive that comfort. And having a comfort with something, I mean, that's really what happened is basically everybody saw the next tulip, they all grabbed a tulip, and then everybody started looking at the tulip and being like, hmm, what am I really going to use this for? I guess this probably is going to work and sold them off. And that's pretty much, you know, that boom and bust. And we saw that happen very clearly. I don't think that's likely to repeat with security tokens because of that credibility, transparency, and linkage with uh, traditional um, financial instruments. Let's pivot for a second because Jack and I are both also interested in efficiency and kind of the culture at at Bridgewater. I, you know, I've read principles a couple times now and looked at specific parts before you probably read it more than I have, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you experienced it. Can you speak a little bit to the culture there and kind of how how you yeah, changed absolutely. as like an investor and economist while being there, and kind of how that how that affects your work now? That's it. It's a yeah. yeah. It's it's the best education I've ever had in my life by far. The absolute two truths. First off, the, the okay. The, there's so much to say. I don't even know where to start, really. The two core principles that Ray Dalio founded Bridgewater on and that permeate the culture throughout is radical transparency and egoless meritocracy. And those sound like pretentious ideas and concepts, but when you break it down, they are extremely efficient and optimally, just inarguably, the best way to run a business. If you have the people who have the emotional control and the desire, and curiosity to follow those through. So let's take the two words, the two two word terms separately, and break them down. So egoless meritocracy that starts with not concerning how well you look to everyone, but only in terms of getting to the truth. So the core of these econometric models and these algorithmic models that Bridgewater has in place are that they seek to learn the truth, and that is it. If I have a hypothesis and it's proved wrong, that's great. If I have a hypothesis and it's proved right, that's great. If I have a hypothesis and it's statistically indeterminate, that's also great. This is all information we can use to move forward. The only thing that is a negative is if we do a test and it's inconclusive, where we don't know which one of those three categories it falls in. So the goal of the egoless meritocracy is if I am wrong about something, I need to know. And people in business are very often unwilling or unable to either give or accept criticism in a constructive fashion. People take it as a personal affront, or people take it as a, a 
you know, slight against their expertise or something. No one at Bridgewater considers themselves infallible. That's an easy way to get fired immediately. And there's a 70% turnover there on a year-to-year basis. So it's a really tough culture to get comfortable with because it is go, it's anathema to the human condition of trying to be right about stuff. The goal of Bridgewater isn't to be right. It's to get to the truth. So that egoless meritocracy, egoless being there's no personal stake, no emotional stake in any argument or discussion or data-driven exercise. And meritocracy is that only the best ideas, Darwinian uh, evolutionarily, uh, evolutionary-wise, come to the top. So the people who perform the best, it doesn't matter how old you are, what you studied in school, you know, who your parents are, anything like that. The meritocratic approach provides the only thing that matters is results. So you're an egoist meritocracy. And in order to manage that, what you also need is what uh, Ray Dalio termed as radical transparency. Bridgewater is the only company in the world where you can watch as an employee every single meeting, top to bottom, chairman on down to the intern uh, that's ever done in this in the entire company everybody at bridgewater has a basically what they term as like a trading card like a baseball trading card that every single person is rated constantly on their strengths and weaknesses so you get immediate constant feedback about what you're doing well what you're not doing well what you can improve upon and that is extremely valuable information so that it's so transparent that you know if i have a trading question this is the guy to go to He's not good at this. He's not great at that, but he's an absolute monster when it comes to trading. So if I want to know about trading, I go to that guy. And the same holds true for Ray, Bob, and Greg themselves, the three top guys, uh, Ray Dalio, uh, Greg Jensen, who built most of the systems as, as a perfect example of the egoless meritocracy and radical transparency, because he came in as an intern in 96, I think, and basically helped build Bridgewater's internal systems from scratch. He had to, they gave him a corporate credit card and said, go buy yourself a computer because we don't even have one for you right now. And from that nothing spot helped build Bridgewater's whole engine. Bob Prince, who is uh, basically a like old school finance guy who has a lot of connections and is extremely smart as well. And is a lot of the client facing meetings that Bob does. He helped raise a lot of Bridgewater's initial funding. So he's extremely important as well. So those three top guys exemplify those principles themselves and they lead from the top on down. And that's also another principle that I like to take myself. Like I don't ask anybody in, in our organization to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself and, and that I'm not you know, consistently demonstrating on a day-to-day basis. So those two concepts of egoless meritocracy and radical transparency permeate the just way that I approach and the way that I would love for everyone to approach business, you know, life analysis, everything, because it really helps create a, it helps foster that search for truth. And that is really what would drive, for example, public policy. People are so concerned with other things other than just evidence-based policy. And you don't see that because it hurts people's feelings. But honestly, people's feelings shouldn't be the end result. The result should be what's best. And like that, I think, is the biggest takeaway. You know, the combination of those principles and the implementation of them is is really what drives success. And Bridgewater's success does speak for itself. So, Baron, what are these specific implementations of the the culture you speak so highly of at Bridgewater look like within the Pink Sky Group? 
Sure. So I was uh, brought on as chief economist, but I've also had a dual role at the Pink Sky Group as the chief operating officer because there were no um, structures or systems in place. So what I did was systemize a lot of uh, what we do on a day-to-day basis so that we can expand easily and contract easily if ever necessary. Such a, And these systems include stuff like procedural algorithmic-based instructions for use of, for example, our lead management software, HubSpot, or our client management software, Monday, and our invoicing procedures and client contact procedures, follow-up procedures, and just laying everything out so that if anybody who was responsible for something was gone and wasn't able to do their job, there is an instruction manual in place for anybody to take on that role. So everybody can have the comfort of knowing that if they need to take a sick day, if something happens, you know, it's very easy to make sure that the roles that need the things that need to get done and the roles that need to be filled are done and filled respectively based on the systems that are in place. And that took a while. You know, it's it it it's not something that people do naturally, but it is something that now looking back, everyone immediately is like, yes, that is that is the way to do things. And having it run smoothly is the most important thing and maximizing efficiency and helping our clients able to make the best and most optimal decisions based on the analysis and and information that we provide is, is a result of fostering that systematic approach to business in general. You mentioned that uh, a big purpose of these systems is to facilitate truth seeking from an investment standpoint. The truth is useful. I'm curious how you mitigate the sort of garbage in, garbage out issue that might pollute the truth-seeking process even you know, in a system as efficient and in good faith as what you're describing at Bridgewater. Yeah, I mean, it is, there's nothing you can do other than just be logical about what goes in. The garbage in, garbage out is 100% true of anything. Uh, any statistical or econometric model, any algorithm, anything you do on anything you know, data analysis-wise if you don't have good inputs, if you're not careful and thoughtful about how you source data, you're not going to get the best output. So the only thing that's in place for that is just logic and discussion and being open to new ideas for different different things. For example, I participated in, uh, this isn't related to Pink Sky Group directly, but tangentially, I've been uh, participating in the MakerDAO governance calls every Thursday. Just had one today. And I've been doing that for a couple of weeks now, and I noticed that there is definitely a lack of transparency in terms of the DAI's current market value because it's traded on decentralized exchanges, it's traded over OTC, so it's very difficult to see really what is the DAI trading at. And one of the things that I suggested was an implementation of exactly what we're talking about, garbage in, garbage out, where there is a chart. At, I think it's, I may get this site wrong, but I think it's uh, like science at dot data. Yeah, I'm not going to try and get it, but they have a source site that I can provide a link to um, after the call where they provide charts on volume weighted last execution prices. But even if you volume weight something on the last execution basis, you're not really getting a good picture of what the market can bear. So the chart looked positive because they implemented a stability fee increase, which is meant to increase the price of DAI by incentivizing the holders of these collateralized debt positions to wipe out the positions and reduce the supply of DAI. And the reason that that 
was done is because Dai was trading, in their opinion, too far below the $1 targeted peg. So in order to get a better idea of what the market can bear, it makes sense in my mind. And what I proposed is looking at the spreads of the exchanges and also if there is an API integration option to look at the orders and seeing the best bid, best offers for the bids and asks and looking at how far are they from that last execution? How wide is the spread? And where is the skew on that execution with respect to the top and bottom of the spread? Uh, and you can look at those order sizes and get a sense for what's real and what's not. And that increased accuracy for the input of the simple question of where is the die right now helps the governance community think about what the next step would be in terms of changing risk parameters to maximize the stability and um, longevity of the coin itself. That's fantastic. So you're taking an extremely active role in terms of evaluating these projects, participating in these communities. Is that the kind of thing that was fostered at Bridgewater? Or is that just a natural inclination in terms of just truth-seeking generally? I kind of want to say neither. It's just a function of, you know, I'm curious and I want to be a part of projects that make a lot of sense and that I see value in. Like I'm willing to do work for MakerDAO statistically for free because that's something that I see as an extremely valuable and really visible project. And if I can contribute in some positive way to the governance community, I would like to do that because I see a lot of value there and I'd like to make sure that the coin operates optimally. And I think that there are a lot of people who think like me in that community. There's about, you know, when I first started joining these calls about a month ago, there was only like 24 people on the calls and Today, is we had like 59. So it's a small, obviously, but growing community of people who vote and have a say in how Maker thinks about and implements the governance that the decentralized autonomous organization is meant to implement. And I don't think it necessarily comes from Bridgewater. I'm sure it's informed in part by, you know, always trying to improve and get better which is another thing, it's another aspect of the same, it's another side of the same coin, which is if you're seeking the truth, you really have to improve yourself on a consistent basis in terms of just learning. Uh, so you can always have a new perspective or a new idea or a new way to approach a problem. And that's seeking to better yourself and your knowledge in addition to getting to the bottom of an idea, it, it helps you know, generate that kind of curiosity and, or rather sustain that kind of curiosity. If you don't mind pivoting for a second. Sure. I'm curious, just thinking a little bit more on um, big picture about the crypto space. So since the, I guess, let's say the 2000, early 2018 crash, in that time frame between then and now, yep. where would you say the crypto space has grown most um, in a positive way? And where would you say the crypto space needs to continue to grow in order to see its goals achieved? I think regulation-wise and transparency-wise, uh, it's definitely becoming much more demanded, and therefore the growth that's been achieved in those areas is significant in my mind. Um, where it could still grow a lot more is being very thoughtful and meticulous in thinking through in one thing that we both are passionate about, token economies. 
and the structuring of both security and utility coins and how they work with the people who are using them, the people who invest in them, and the overall economy and the interaction points. You know, really planning that out is something that still needs to happen on a more consistent basis. You know, we see from Pink Sky Capital people coming to pitch all kinds of ideas all the time. And the very consistent thing that comes up a lot is that there's just a lack of sensitivity analysis or thoughtful assessments of, well, what if this happens or what if that happens? You know, everyone comes in with a very traditional equity valuation, DCF type valuation approach, and it's really rigid. It, it doesn't provide for that flexibility that this type of space really requires. And um, I think there's a lot of room to improve on the flexibility area in terms of the analysis. Now, there are groups like MakerDAO, and there was another um, stable coin that was in the works that I don't think ever panned out, but I was extremely impressed by their white paper looking at how to create a system that will work in this space, and MakerDAO has done that. And, Are you referring uh, to Basis, perhaps? Yes, that was the one, Basis. Yep, 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 yep. Th- those guys were real sharp. So they did a very good job of structuring that as well. I don't know what happened to that, if it ever launched. So actually what happened to Basis is this is something that came across our table, I'd say about four or five months ago. Yeah, uh, Basis ended up shutting right. down and turning, uh, returning the vast majority of the money to their investors uh, because they mainly, what, what they wrote is that because the vehicle to kind of invest in the, in the token uh, would be a security, which would make the, the protocol not really functional to get yep. widespread adoption. Because you uh, have to go through the KYC AML standard every time. It, it, exactly, yeah. And, but they, have you heard of the, the stablecoin project Reserve? I have not, but that might be something similar to Basis. I can't remember. There's definitely some similarities, but the one of the founders, Nevin, he uh, actually wrote an article that kind of, uh, or him and the, and the reserve team wrote an article on the problems and issues with Basis and kind of why it structurally is very unlikely to work, including kind of these legal issues. And we could link to that in the show notes. And then they're launching right now and you know we're we're investors in them so obviously we you know have some bias but i think you know in the talibian sense like it's it's a good type of bias you know to show that we <laughs> kind of put our capital where our where our thoughts are we verb uh, the word nicholas nasim taleb i love it <laughs> they uh they use a senior share model and yeah. kind of yeah that was it it was the senior model Exactly. It was the, yeah, that's, that was the basis thing that was impressive. The but, 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 but for basis, it's a senior share without really any collateral. Right. So but then this is going to be collateralized. Yeah. And, and, and the, the issue with senior shares with no collateral from, from my perspective is that basically once you start losing some confidence, yeah, uh, I think that like a, a death spiral is, is very likely. So you, you just have to have like continued growth and confidence without any missteps where, you know, when you take kind of like a maker DAO or like a reserve, yes, there's still, scenarios in which kind of there could be a death spiral but it's a lot more unlikely when you have you know massive amounts of collateral and uh, especially in you know reserve and MakerDAO's cases uh really going for a high ratio of over collateralization to avoid it yeah and i think that's one again a very similar approach that MakerDAO took to ensure that there is that ability to withstand precipitous drops in ethereum which is exactly what happened and there's you know passed with flying colors 
Yeah. I mean, so I, I think that that bodes really well for MakerDAO. I still think there's a lot there's a lot more issues and potential black swans with the way MakerDAO is set up versus something yep. like Reserve. Uh, I, I'm unfamiliar think, with Reserve, but I'll definitely look into it um, after the call for sure. Yeah, no, I'd be curious to your thoughts on this. But yeah, I think MakerDAO is, you know, even if let's say it goes up in flames in the next year or two, which I'd say is, you know, less likely than it continuing in some form. Uh, it's a really amazing, I think, step forward in terms of decentralized and open finance yep. uh, and the ability for you know anyone to be able to basically, you know, the, for I think for a lot of the people, it's it's leveraging their crypto position. So they're long on ETH and then they leverage that to either buy more ETH or other ERC20 tokens. But maybe for others, it's, you know, they they have ETH and they, they want to just take out more uh, more money to put it to work to somewhere else. And the fact that you can do that without having to go through any centralized intermediary or, you know, without going yep. through kind of KYC AML, I think that's really, really fantastic. Yeah. And I think realistically, if they don't follow through with the multi-collateral die system, then yeah, I mean, only having ether as the option for collateral does limit the uh, ability for the system to function as it is ideally meant to, but having multi-collateral, if that does eventually happen, which looks to be the case, it's really going to provide a lot of different opportunities and it's going to add a great deal of needed diversification to maintain stability. So you mentioned that token economics is an area where the space needs continued growth. And I think Zach and I both strongly agree with you there. In a sort of small sample biased way, I feel like I've noticed that trend starting to occur in new projects that are currently you know, in their fundraising stage, uh, an increased emphasis on token economics, even if that emphasis is sometimes not leading to conclusions that are likely to work. But I'm wondering, why do you think we haven't seen improvements in tokenomic structure in existing pro- projects that you know have in, in many ways been sort of invalidated by just you know additional modeling done by the community at large? You mean like uh, currently operating utility coins that are still operating suboptimally? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a litany of tokens amongst the top 10, 20, 100 tokens in current market cap that seem to have fairly obvious and potentially disastrous tokenomic flaws. Yet there doesn't seem to be much of a push to try and find a way to correct those flaws. And I think for some of these, there there could be maybe the correct allegation of that project having always been a scam and there being no need to continue to work on that project considering that the main objective has already been achieved. But I think that plenty of these projects are, are still trying to move towards those goals and haven't taken very visible steps in terms of improving their token economics. And I'm just wondering if you have thoughts on, on why that is or if you have suggestions on you know, specific projects who have made changes along these lines that you would have other projects that are existing and trying to operate look to as an example of how they can improve their chances at surviving long-term? I think it probably has to deal with incentives. Um, That's really the only thing that I could think of. I am a believer in at least the strong form, semi-efficient market hypothesis. I do believe data is incorporated pretty quickly by people who have a monetary stake. And to see lack of improvement in areas where it's clear it's needed my gut reaction would be there has to be a lack of incentivization to correct that. 
This could be in many different forms, but generally that would be where the people who have the incentive to do it or should have the incentive to do it aren't properly incentivized to do it. Um, so like, I think that's, you know, a testable hypothesis in the original ICO phase and the original ICO boom, where there was just almost no attention paid to token economics because there was no incentive to do so because it was easy to get funding. It was easy to raise money. And when that happens, and then you have these systems that have, are, are grandfathered from that phase that are still functional, it might just be a simple explanation of there's just no real incentive for those people managing those projects to do it. And if they do have the incentive, there's now a way more numerous people to go to and people in the community, and it's an easier outreach than it was year and a half ago. So it's not that there aren't providers of that service, as you and I both know. It's just a function of a lack of incentive to take that step. I can't really opine intelligently on what those exact you know, lack of incentives are a result of, but it seems that on its face, that is what I would say is the reason, most likely reason as to why we don't see market improvement in areas where it should you know, be obvious that it's necessary. I, I think we could speak a little bit to kind of why the incentives aren't there, which is because the token for the vast majority of these projects wasn't a vehicle to capture, you know, the network value of a distributed network. It was the vehicle for regulatory arbitrage and raising fast money. Yeah. Um, and if that's so true, then that, that, that totally fits the data. Like that is an engine that fits the data. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I guess I won't name the name of, you know, the, the major, uh, one of the major, if not the, the major, tokenomics and generally crypto consulting firms. But when we kind of took over for uh, a client in helping them with their token model, when they were kind of engaged to assist, assist our client with token economics on the section. And, you know, the advice they got was be as vague as possible and make it so, you know, there's basically like no accountability and figure it out all later after you raise the money. Yeah. That's, uh, that's not going to fly nowadays. Yeah. I think in terms of incentives, like, it's easy to look at a lot of these projects and say that, you know, they still own a lot of the token. They have an incentive to see that token become more successful. But I think probably the reason that that incentive isn't very strong is that one, when you're already rich, you're less incentivized to work your ass off to make more money. And also, I guess maybe some of these founders just put their... <laughs> just on that point, Ray Dalio would uh, seek to disagree. I, I, I think certainly <laughs> there are exceptions to that. But if you, I guess probably a lot of these projects maybe just see the likelihood of there being a solution as so low that... Yeah, you know, that's possible too. Clearly, I think plenty of hyper-successful people are... I guess if... Okay, so if you're the... I'd actually go... Person, I'd go the other way. I'd go the other way. I think most hyper-successful people are likely to not be satisfied with whatever the level of success they achieve because it's the achieving and the improvement that is the driver and was the initial driver of that success. That's a great point. And I think that probably a lot of those people who are hyper successful would not have gone in this sort of yes. That's there's a selection bias. Yes. There, there we go. There's abs- See, that makes perfect sense. There's absolutely a censored data or a selection bias um, that we clearly see because I think people who have that hyper successful mentality would not have gone through a like a quick fix type solution. Yeah, and I think. Clearly, 
like, so an example of a project that I think Zach and I feel has tokenomic challenges, even if you know we still like the project in a lot of ways, is Ethereum. And we also feel like there was a lot of goodwill in terms of the Ethereum ICO and that there has been continued efforts to see Ethereum be a successful platform. It's just that maybe the reason we haven't seen much in the way of like economic improvement is because the focus of those platforms has never been extremely economic and it's just more of a technology project. Uh, it could be another explanation for why these sort of technology-driven ventures aren't focusing continued efforts on improving the tokenomics structure. Yeah, I mean, that that certainly makes sense. And uh, there is, you know, it, it's interesting because to really have a solid project, you need a merging of the technology of legal, of econometrics and economics and, and the business use case. And very rarely do you get a group that has expertise in all of those areas. So, for example, like you said, Ethereum leans heavily on the tech side. And there's other areas that lead heavily on the economic side. And there's other areas that, you know, there's other projects that combine both. And, you know, I keep bringing up MakerDAO because it's really the like most successful thing that I, you know, see with that type of philosophy. You know, they really do have a merging of at least three or four of the possible areas of expertise. And it's a really um, symbiotic relationship among them. And you see that in the results. So, you know, the proofs in the pudding type thing and the ICOs that we were talking about earlier that are, I don't want to say zombies, but like not necessarily walking dead, but certainly not, you know, living, breathing, active humans in this analogy. You know, you probably have some of that as well, where there's a group that is leaning very hard on one of the pedestals and not very well on the others. Yeah, absolutely. Although, I guess the semi-efficient uh, market hypothesis kind of flies in the face of that a little bit, but who knows? Well, not necessarily, because it can be operating. You can operate in this space without failure at some minimal level. Um, so it doesn't necess- necessarily require failure for suboptimal projects to exist. Sure, but given that most of the usage is speculatory, like I don't, I don't think many of these projects, which we're sort of defining as zombies, have like a massive user base that's propping up the value even in without continued development. But yeah, but the, like just leaning on the efficient, the semi-efficient market hypothesis, they do exist, right? So there has to be a sufficient user base in order for them to exist. Otherwise, they simply wouldn't, right? Mm. Well, so if if you want to counter that, then the the next question is. Why do they still exist? And how do they still exist? Well, I guess we would have to say, like, what would it mean for one of these companies to, or one of these projects to not exist? Um, for, I think, like, the token not to be traded, would maybe, or it not to be used as it was intended, or if it, like, stopped being used, or if the service or whatever it was stopped being provided. You know, but if there is a base of people that currently use the token, that trade it, that utilize it, that get you know their rewards from it or whatever it is, whatever the economy structure is, then that would be what I would qualify as quote unquote like existing. If the token just exists and is untraded and unused, then I would not say that exists. 
Yeah, I think that's a reasonable sort of answer to the, if a tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it, application in the crypto space. Still in terms of market cap, I don't, I don't know if like there can be an efficient markets hypothesis justification for some of the prices that we see, but that might just be my bias. Oh, but that's, a, that's certainly explainable in terms of a rational exuberance of people with respect to certain ideas. And that's why I'm a big fan of the semi-strong efficiency argument rather than the strong efficiency argument because you have to allow for humans to be human. I guess the question is to what degree is, is semi-semi, you know? I think yeah, then, then we get into you know, almost an esoteric debate at that point. No, not, uh, yeah. not esoteric. I mean, like, what if like the the actions of the market participants are just like not a little different than what would be economically rational, but perhaps like close to the opposite and happen for sustained periods of time. Yeah. I mean, we'd have to look at specific cases. I mean, there are, the internet bubble is a perfect example. You know, I mean, it was completely irrational to expect the price to earnings ratios that were, and the complete lack of financing that was backing a lot of those initial Companies and even back in the 70s or the 60s and 70s, when corporations started to become a big thing, you saw the same type of thing. There was a sustained, longer, you know, than could possibly be expected, like maintenance and, and, you know, stock price increases for these companies. You know, if you just added the word corporation, all of a sudden these, it was like, oh, wow, like, you know, this Pan American Airlines Corporation is amazing. But that one actually turned out to work out until it went bankrupt. But, you know, a lot of those corporations that came to be in the 60s and 70s, especially in the 60s, mostly really, you saw that uh, from an economic history standpoint of you saw people acting irrationally for longer than you think would be reasonable under a semi-strong efficient market hypothesis. But I think that's where you get that humans being human thing is that that's expected. You know, George Soros calls it reflexivity. And Ray Dalio terms it, you know, the circular motion of like debt cycles and stuff. Sure. I guess I don't want to, I don't think we need to get too far into this, but I'm curious if you would disagree with me saying that like by by this definition, the semi-efficient market hypothesis is kind of a tautology just in terms of just saying the price is what people are willing to pay for it. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, yeah, I'd say by definition that is, right? I mean, that's the definition of it. I, I, I like the old saying, like, oh. the market will stay irrational longer than you will stay solvent. Well, that, I think, <laughs> is a very good advice. <laughs> I'm always a fan very, of that, especially, very when engaging, the truth. especially when engaging in short positions. That is, you know, anytime you're going to be... Uh, you know, short volatility, for example, that is a dangerous proposition. Yeah. Well, luckily, there's not much of a infrastructure for shorting these zombies. And, you know, our desire to maybe tempt fate with how long the market can stay irrational is alleviated by a lack of options. Yeah, that, that's certainly an interesting point as well. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's just nothing else that can be done, really. There isn't that market correction for people who would be willing to bet against them. I guess that's an interesting point there, too, that there isn't that incentive to improve if there's no ability to borrow shares and short to put downward pressure on the price. So that could play into the reason that they're staying because the market doesn't have the tools that allow the investors with the information to do with what they would have done normally. Yeah, well, I mean, that's been how I've 
explained to myself some of the valuations that we've continued to see. Yeah, I mean, like Tether, for example. Like Tether just doesn't make sense to me. Like I just don't understand how you can not have a fully quote-unquote collateralized coin without having the auditing systems in place and the transparency in place. Like that was existing for a long time on a wing and a prayer type situation. You have a bank account? <laughs> right. Exactly. Why do I need a banking? Like, I think it was the lawyers that were auditing the bank accounts. And it was like, um, I, don't, I don't know what's going on over there. I'm just, I'm making a, a joke that I think a lot of people are, I guess, fairly comfortable with a fractional reserve model. Although there's not so much FDIC for Tether. Right. But even a fractional reserve model, the, the, the reserves that were there weren't being audited properly. Like, quote unquote, there. I don't know if they were there. I don't know where they I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I haven't yeah, checked I, in on Tether in a while. So I don't know if that's still the case or if they've improved those procedures. But, you know, when we work with our clients, we always very, very strongly recommend the highest transparency uh, with respect to cost that's feasible. I wonder if we'll see an attack on Tether by, you know, a motivated party just slowly trying to receive dollars back until they can maybe try and trigger some sort of crisis. <laughs> Although... Yeah, I mean, that, it, it's hard to say, you know, that, yeah, it's pretty big market cap is the thing. Like, there's just a lot of people using it for some reason. There's an article I'll include, which talked about how actually there, there was an already an example of this, of like kind of manipulation of Tether to be able to arbitrage it and kind of the unfortunate game theoretic scenarios that arise uh, with stable coins. Uh, I'll link to that in the show notes once I'm able to find it. It was a, it was a really good read and made me feel even better about not putting any money in, you know, I, I, I think there's a good chance Tether is, is, you know, a hundred percent or very close to hundred percent collateralized. But, uh, I think there's a lot of risks when you're putting your money in a quote stable coin where you only have, you know, one or two banks with all the money, even if it is fully collateralized. And, you know, the auditing and like that procedure as well, it just has to be supremely above board. You know, the discrepancy between what the market cap suggests are the auditing procedures and what the actual auditing procedures are is, yeah, definitely a ding against the semi-strong efficient market hypothesis for sure. So Baron, I know you have to run soon. Is there anything you'd like to plug or for, you know, us to include so our, our listeners can learn more about you and, and follow you? Um, yeah, I mean, I can link to Pink Sky Group. We're still updating the website to put a lot of the articles that I wrote for Seeking Alpha on our blog. But really, I mean, if you want to contact me, just uh, I can put my contact information there for you guys, and you can just make that public, just my direct email at Pink Sky Group. And uh, we can, you know, update that, I guess, in the future as we uh, get you know, a lot of the articles that I've written up there. But uh, yeah, I'm open to contact for anything. If anyone's curious and wants to discuss tokenomics, I'm happy to do so. There's definitely a lot of interesting projects out there uh, that we'd like to learn about as well. Baron, we really appreciate having you on. Look forward to seeing what you guys can develop in the STO space over at Pink Sky. And I wish you nothing but the greatest success. Excellent. I, I wish you guys the same as well. It's been, uh, been a pleasure talking with you both. and. Um, yeah, feel free to always reach out and I look forward to talking to you again in the future.